0: And, uh, and Phil has excellently looked at the last two weeks, um, the gospel and holiness and the gospel and missions. And this morning, we're going to look at the gospel and diversity. And I, I, I smiled there because I know some of you think I'm the diversity man and all that type of thing. It's not quite true, but that's the way it is. Um, but what I will say is, I, is Pauline, uh, uh, my wife at the back, has brought uh, a number of my books. <laughs> So although I don't claim to be the diversity man, if you have never read my book on uh, diversity in the church, it's still worth reading, and you can buy it from Pauline for, for five pounds. So, um, so, Sorry? Is it in Waterstones? Good. Uh, it's in Waterstones. It's no doubt a bestseller, and all those types <laughs> of things. I just don't know that yet. No one's told me. Um, uh, but it is there, and it's interesting how um, I finished the book about three years ago, and I would say that in many ways my thoughts have, have, have sort of developed, uh, my language has changed. Uh, you could read the book and find it a little bit sort of, um, uh, uh, I don't know what, but it's, it, it, I've developed a little bit <laughs> since those days. Anyway, um, we're going to look at this subject today. It's actually a difficult subject for me to speak on because um, I've written on it and I've got lots of thoughts on it and I don't simply want to regurgitate uh, old ideas. So uh, I've been praying that God would help me. Okay, I want you to put your hand up if you would <coughs> like to see uh, Beacon Church grow. Yeah? Well, just put your hand up. Daisy, you want to put, see Beacon church grow? Okay. Some of us do. Some of us probably don't care. <laughs> not. But some of us would like to see the church grow. I, I now want you just to close your eyes for a moment. I want everyone just to close their eyes for a moment. Um, And I want you to think about the group of people um, in this world that you fear the most or, if you can't think of, if you're like, I don't fear anyone, um, or the group of people that you feel the most uncomfortable around. Just want you to think about who that would be. Who's the group? Now, I want you to be honest because it's easy to say, do you know what, I don't fear anyone and... I'm comfortable with everyone. But let's just be honest for a moment. The people that you fear the most and the people that you feel the most uncomfortable (coughs) around. Just think about that for a moment. It might be that you feel uncomfortable because of your history. It might be that a particular experience has made you feel that way or... It might be simply because of what you've heard about them, that you don't even necessarily know anyone, but, oh, oh, yeah, I I feel uncomfortable around that type of person, or I fear those people, um, uh, you know, just because I've heard some stuff. You don't need to say anything, but I I want you to to open your eyes. It may even be, if we're really, really honest, that someone in our church represents that group. Yeah, now you're not gonna say that, yeah. It might be me, you might go, do you know what I mean, you're the most uncomfortable person. (laughs) Yeah, you represent the people I just can't handle. Or it might be if we're really honest that somebody represents it. Even in a church of this size. I want you to imagine now, quite positively, that that the church doubles in size. Yeah? And, that, and that this number of people are, are over here as well, and that these guys are not alone and feel excluded, but they feel included, um, it doubles in size, and 50% of that growth comes from the group of people you feel most uncomfortable with. Yeah, So there are loads of me sitting here. <laughs> yeah, And you're, oh, my life! <laughs> How many more Owens can we take? But 50% of that growth comes from the people that you fear or that you feel most uncomfortable with. How do you think you'd cope? How do you think you would handle that? You might be thinking to yourself, "Mm, that's a a good point. I I don't know how I would cope. It's okay maybe when there's one or there's two, but if if there were like 40, I don't know how I would cope with that. Some of you might be thinking, well, I could live with that, provided there were enough people who I could get on with, I could live with a whole load of other people who who I know I can't. I I could cope with that. As long as I could still find my friends. Over the last five to ten years, churches in the UK have been growing like that everywhere. Yeah, that groups of people have been joining them who are, who are nothing like them, and some of those groups are people that they just don't understand, they don't get, and sometimes they fear. Everyone wants their church to grow, but not all of us want it to grow in the same way. We all want the church to grow. Yeah, I can handle a bit more diversity, uh, but, you know, it can go too far. This week and next week, we're going to be looking at the gospel and diversity and the gospel and culture. And these two works of grace underpin what a truly diverse church ought to look like. A church that grows in the way that I've described, but the people do not properly understand the works of grace in terms of diversity and culture will struggle with the growth. They won't struggle initially, you'll embrace it initially because like, it's just more people. But you'll struggle when it comes to how church begins to operate and the way it begins to change because of the growth. You'll find it hard work. You'll get frustrated because, because some people aren't doing the things you think they should be doing, but, but you don't feel you can go and tell them to do anything different. You'll struggle with it. There'll be underlying tensions. And what you'll do is you'll withdraw... To the few people that you know, the little island where you can feel comfortable with people around you. The church begins to walk on eggshells because you don't understand. And you don't understand why. Why is it so difficult? God, if you've called us to build diverse churches, why is it so difficult? Why does it appear so hard to do? (coughs) And that's what happens for people who don't understand the, or like have a, of a theology that underpins what goes on. And so if you have a theology that underpins it, you'll embrace your benefit and you'll be expressing one of the most powerful aspects of the gospel. How God reconciles and joins people who you would rather live without. Yeah? There are people that we would rather... Just live without you i 'm happy for you to exist you can be over there yeah, yeah. you can even come to my church i 'm happy for that, but you know what I could live without you I could if you weren 't here I would be okay I could still survive. How does God reconcile us with the people we would rather live without let 's pray Father, we want to just uh, thank you for your presence thank you that Already in our worship you have reminded us of grace and we are so grateful that we didn't do anything to deserve this. We didn't do anything to make ourselves Christians. It was an act of pure grace. And Father, you've also reminded us about your (coughs) peace, that your peace comes to us. Where can we find some peace? Jesus, we know we find it in you. And I just pray that as I... Speak into this, I pray you would bring revelation of grace and peace into this particular area, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sorry, I don't have a PowerPoint, so if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 11 to verse 22. So, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. This is what it says. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body of uh, by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope And without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I'm going to make one assumption. And the assumption is this, that when Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote this uh, letter to the church in Ephesus in around AD 60, he wrote it to a group of people who are not that much different to us. Now, obviously, there are some differences. They didn't meet in the cinema or anything like that. Um, But in terms of humans and human relationships and people and all the types of things that Paul talked about, they were very similar. That for all the technological advances we have made, we have not yet learned how to deal with envy, other than you can cover it up and make it look like something else. But we've not learned how to deal with it. You know, nobody nobody makes fire really with sticks anymore. You know, apart from what's his name, Bear Grylls. He does it, but he only does it to look good and it makes him money on telly. Nobody, you don't go home and do this to make fire anymore. You don't. You don't need to do that because we've developed things that you can go home and you can turn on the electric or you put on the gas. Yeah, but you've not found a way of dealing with envy. Yeah or with jealousy or with lust or with greed we've not found ways of dealing with those things so in that sense the bible is really relevant and this particular passage remains relevant to us because people themselves haven't changed yeah they're the same and so that's the assumption that i'm making that we're all the same and i've got three three things that i just want us to look at from this passage the first is this we're talking about the gospel and diversity. Diversity is a grace act brought about by Jesus' death. It's a grace act. See, the interesting context of this passage that we've just looked at is this passage. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9 says this, For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I found it interesting that our our worship sort of lingered there it lingered on talking about grace it lingered on the fact that god has saved us and there's nothing that we did to do it there's nothing that we did it wasn't that i ran fast and i got to him first yeah god saved me by grace so why do i put the reconciliation of people the idea that god would pull you together to live with people who are unlike you who you'd rather live without why do i put that under under grace That reconciliation in the context of grace is because our acceptance by God has nothing to do with anything that inherently divides us. So you may be tall or short or you may be sort of light skinned or dark skinned. You might have curly hair or straight hair. None of those things have anything to do with you coming to God. You may talk in this language or that language. You might have certain cultural practices that you think are good and someone else has other cultural practices that they think are good, but none of them have anything to do with you coming to God. You are saved through faith. Yeah, you're saved by grace through faith. Yeah, it's not to do with your works. Even the Jews could not hold on to the fact that their Jewishness made them closer to God because it didn't. That was the whole point. That was the whole thing the Apostle Paul was arguing about. Look, Jews, don't get it wrong. Don't think to yourself that because you carry out and you carry on these laws that you are any closer to God than the man who doesn't even give a monkey's about the law. Yeah? You're saved by grace through faith. That's how you get there. That's how you come to Jesus. So nothing inherent in who we are divides us from that moment. There's nothing about that. Faith that saves is no more common among Asians who live in India than it is among Africans who live in Africa. It's no more common. The faith that saves doesn't, oh, exists over here more. They seem to have, no, no, the faith that saves is not more common in one culture over another culture. African children are not born with a stronger dispensation to believe on the Lord Jesus. They're not. Yeah? I'm not saying they're not born with maybe Christian parents, but it does not give you a stronger dispensation to believe that Jesus is the way to God. Yeah? Because you can accept all sorts of things without really understanding that. And other people are not born with one that doesn't do that. Now, some people are religious, but salvation is a grace act. Secondly, the one thing that most people associate with living a life obedient to god any god is works it's performance it's effort it's what i do it's how i operate yeah even for the christian yeah most christians might accept they just about accept oh yeah okay yeah i'm saved by grace but boy it's hard work being a christian yeah, even for the Christian that's our approach, we're saved by grace, but then it's really hard work. <coughs> and in any other faith, to be honest, it's all works. It's all works because it's only in Jesus who saves. And this verse deals with that. It says, look, it's a gift of God, even the faith that saves you is a gift of God, not by works. Why is it not by works? So that there's no boasting. So you can't put your way, your culture, your thing up as though, look, this is more godly. Look at us. Look what we do with our children. Yeah? Or look how we respond to people. Look how compassionate we are. No, none of it makes any difference when it comes to being saved, when it comes to knowing Jesus. None of it. So we can conclude this. There is no one group on the face of the earth that are more likely to respond to Jesus because of their culture, their ethic, or their background. None. And I would defy anyone to sort of show that that is different. There is no one group. And the the Bible even says of Israel, when in the Old Testament, God warns Israel. He says to them, look, look, please understand. Don't think it was because you were any different to them that I chose you. I chose you by grace. I didn't choose you because you were looking for me. I chose you by grace. I could have chosen any people on the face of the earth. The other thing we must note about this passage is it only asks us to do one thing. So this passage that talks about how does God um, pull together people (laughs) who you'd rather live without and join them in one sort of body, it only asks us to do one thing. Does anyone know what that one thing is? What does it ask us to do? Anyone was listening when I read anyone listening now? Okay, it asks us to remember. That's the only thing it asks you to do, to remember. It asks you to remember that once you were out, that formerly you were not part of the people of God. It asks you to remember that once upon a time you were not part of the family. That's it. Everything else it says is a statement of who you are and what's happened. It's almost like you sit back, you accept Jesus by, uh, by, faith, by grace, through faith, and you sit back and everything else just happens around you. You are not asked to do anything. Why is that so important? It's so important for this reason. The reconciliation of Jew and Gentiles, of you and the people you most fear has already taken place. The reconciliation that Jesus won at the cross is not based on the fact that you are now going to do some stuff. Yeah, that Jesus has said, okay, now you're a Christian, you've got to go and love those people, um, and you're like, my goodness me, I I, I don't even like those people. How do I do that? Oh, I've got to find a way of loving people I don't like. It's already taken place. He's already created the one new man in himself. He's already done it. There is nothing for you or for I to do to add to that. (coughs) The passage says, Formerly, you who were foreigners, it points out. Then a short while later, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near. How have you been brought near? Through the blood. Yeah? You weren't brought near because you were looking and you deserved it. You were brought near through the blood. He has already done. It goes on to say, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and members of God's household. How did I become a citizen? How did I become a member of his household? How did I become a member of his family? Well, you go back to the passage in Ephesians 2.8, eight By grace. I didn't get here because I did anything. I didn't get here because I was deserving. I got here because I accepted Jesus. And it was through grace that I have now a member of the household. And that anyone who accepts Jesus, anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus is there. You're already there. You're already part of this family. You did nothing to activate the change. And that's really important, and it's really important for this reason, that when it comes to building a truly diverse church, which is underpinned by the theology that talks about it, we recognise this, it's nothing about us. It's not about you. It's not because you have something in your spirit that says, do you know what, I feel God's calling me to be part of a multicultural church. There is nothing to do with you feeling you're called to be part of a multicultural church. It's what he did at the cross. Yeah, it's what he actually already achieved. Ephesians 3 tells us, it tells us that there was a mystery that was hidden from ages past. Well, what was the mystery? The mystery was that he had joined Jew and Gentile together, that they both inherited. That was the mystery. It wasn't because certain people felt a calling and other people didn't feel a calling, or that some people felt, oh yeah, I'm going to go to that type of place, and I want to go to London, because in London they have those types of churches, and I want to be in one of those churches, because they're the churches there's nothing about that, nothing about you, nothing about me. He created it from the very beginning. And that really helps someone like me. Yeah, Because I realise, do you know what, God, you're building it. It's not. I'm not building it. I'm not trying to find new methods and ways and programmes that are going to help people who really don't want to be together be together. You already brought them together. And if you understand that, and when the church grows like that, you've got something under it. Oh yeah, that's what Jesus is building it. He said he was going to do this. Yeah? And so that's what he's doing. I think I've tried to make that point. It wasn't created by changing social demographics or individual choices or economics. I was at the food bank yesterday. I spoke to three Different people. I spoke to a Spanish woman, a Colombian couple, and an English man who were all at Food Bank because of economics. That's why they were there in the end. We are not here today because of economics. We are not here today because of demographical changes. We are here today because of the work of grace achieved at the cross. That's why we're here, the reconciliation of people who you'd rather live without. The second thing I want you to note is the thing that Jesus does is really quite unexpected. So if you think about how people operate around people who uh, they don't want to live without, if you think about the moment you're living, uh, where it talks about that you're without God and without hope in the world. So you think about people in that state. The name calling, circumcision. Now, we don't do this. I don't go, you uncircumcised, whatever. Yeah? But when David said that to Goliath, it was, an, it was meant as an insult. Yeah, You uncircumcised Philistine. He called him names. Yeah, and We get name calling, don't we? People call names. They don't, might not say names to my face, and, but they call names. Secondly, there's bad history. There's wars. There's oppression. There's all sorts of things that we look back on that mean even in our present, we can be a little bit unsure about people who are not quite like us. We can be a little bit a little bit skeptical, a little bit aware. Yeah? And so we go, "Oh yeah, thank the Lord, He's bringing them into the church, but you know you're a little bit wary. you're having to deal with your own stuff. We can all get there. And so what we find is that these types of churches end up being a little bit really, really happy on the outside, but actually it's really, really a little bit tense underneath. Yeah, a little bit tense, and we haven't really able to, to talk it out. And sometimes we struggle, we struggle when the church grows like that. You know, I could live without them, and okay, they're in the church, I reckon, okay, you know, I once went to a church, I spoke on this subject, guy came up to me at the end, he said, great talk, but by the way, I'm racist. I said, okay, why don't we just carry on this conversation? Yeah, so he's going to a church, he's acknowledging, though, that I've got these things in me. We acknowledge that some people from different places are Christians, we're not sure how we talk to them, we look forward to maybe in heaven we'll talk to them. Won't that be wonderful? Where we'll all be together in heaven. I don't need to be like that now, but in heaven I can talk to all sorts of people because Jesus will be there. Hallelujah. That's what we sort of think. And that was the situation before the act activating event of the cross and the bloodshed. Yeah? So those first two or three verses of of what I read describes a situation which later then talks about hostility, talks about barriers, it talks about things that kept people apart, things that people found difficult. Then it says this, and this is surprising. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one. Now the cross was an act of violence brought about on Jesus by people. But in many ways it was the last act of violence. Because after the cross Jesus brought about peace. He brought about peace between the Jew and between the Gentile. Something that was actually unimaginable, he did. It was unimaginable. Imaginable that God could bring peace between people who were so disparate and different. What's the first thing, the first commandment that Jesus gives to his disciples when he ascends into heaven is go ye into all the world, and where's the first place there to go? To Samaria. Who's in Samaria? They're sworn enemies. So right at that very moment, they're having to deal with the reality. Oh, this message is, is, is for everyone. It's for more than just us. Jesus brought peace. But he's not only in our peace. The Bible says the gospel is a gospel of peace. One of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. In Galatians 5, in Matthew 5 verse 9, it says, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Psalm 29 says, the Lord blesses his people with peace. Romans 5 says, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace. Where's that peace? It's peace with God. God is a God of peace. But also God puts peace at the heart of human relationships. It says in Romans 14, make every effort to do what leads to peace. So right at the heart of this new kind of peace, people that God is creating this one new humanity made out of the Jew and the Gentile that has come out of hostility and barriers right at the heart of what God has created he's created a people of peace doesn't that surprise you it surprised me because I thought do you know what there's very little peace when people come together like that there's too much that's going on underneath the surface. There's very little peace and yet actually it's right there that he creates peace. How does he do it? It says he destroys in his body their, their, all the things that divided them and he creates in himself one new man and he reconciles that one new man to God. That's what he did. You see, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the act of the shedding of blood, was that final act of violence, and it found a people of peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. Do you know what we pursue all the time? is the peace with God. Our gospel is about peace with God. Our gospel is about you can find peace with God, and that's a very attractive gospel. But in truth, it's only in half the gospel. The gospel is about peace with your fellow man your fellow believer, your fellow brother and sister. So a church that truly pursues and understands the underlying theology of this, of this Ephesians passage, what Jesus did at the cross, will not be full of underneath surface, under, under the surface tensions. It won't be full of little things that you think, oh man, I'm going to have to put up with that, or that person, I don't know how to. It won't be full of that, it will be full of peace. Because that's what he did. He brought together people in order to bring peace. Because he put together, he put to death their hostility. That's what it says, he put it to death. The gospel of diversity centres around the fact that Jesus... Did this. And what that means is that the greatest form of shared experience we can have is at the cross. It's the greatest form of shared experience. Now you all know, because we live in a world that is continually looking for ways to bring people together. Yeah, what does it mean to be British? We're trying to find ways of bringing people together. The Olympics were great, weren't they? Because it was one of the ways that you had all sorts of people being brought together. But we also know that's only a surface thing. And it could only last for a certain amount of time. Yeah, we can't rerun the Olympics every day. Yeah, after watching Mo Farah get his gold for the hundredth time, even I'm going to get a bit bored by it. You know, I'm going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, he wins. Great. That isn't enough. It's not enough to bring true unity, it's not enough to bring true peace. Yeah, I mean, Ed Miliband in his most uh, recent preacher at his um, uh, at his sort of uh, um, the party conference. He he's got this slogan: one nation. Well, that's wonderful, one nation. But you can't bring about one nation through some sort of policy. You just can't do it. I mean, you can bring about an idea, and people can think, yeah, well, we're striving towards one nation. But actually, at the cross, Jesus brought about one nation, one new nation. If we understand that, if we get that, you can actually do it. You can actually do it. But we must understand this. You can't do it any other way. You can bring about things that look like they bring peace and unity and togetherness, but, and I'm not, I don't want to decry people's attempts to do that, particularly if they do not have Jesus. People are going to try and do that. But actually, the only place you can truly find peace With your your brother or your sister or your neighbour who you'd rather live without is at the cross. It's the only place. There is no other place to do it. So the final thing. Not only did Jesus bring about peace, which was unexpected at that point where there was most division and hostility, he brought peace. He also gave us peace. He also gave us something. We didn't do anything about it, but he gave us this new identity. If I have been saved by grace through faith, I no longer count as a foreigner. I no longer count as an alien. I am a fellow citizen and a member of God's household. That's what I am. It's not like that's what I'm going to try. That is what I am. If I have been saved by grace through faith, that is what I am, built on this common foundation of the apostles and prophets. Where does Christ sit? As the chief cornerstone. How is the house built? In him the whole building is joined together. What joins us? The only thing that joins us is Christ. It's the only thing that joins us. There is nothing else that ultimately joins us. Your economic situation, your education. Oh yeah, you went to uni, I went to uni. You did, I went, wow, look, there's so many. Th- no, those things don't join you. They certainly don't join you deep enough. Yeah? The only thing that joins us is the fact that Christ is the cornerstone of the house. He is building us together. We are not separate with equal access to the Father. We are joined. As I said earlier, Risk of repeating myself. In Ephesians 3, it goes on to talk about the mystery that was hidden from ages past that the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Yeah, that was the mystery. That was the thing that nobody could see until this moment it began to be revealed. What's the implications for us? One of the implications is this. If you now try and find a church you're Israel, yeah? A church of people and it's like predominantly you're Israel, one of the things you are doing is you are denying something that the cross has achieved. You don't understand the mystery in the coming together of the Gentile and the Jew. In him we're built together. What's that building? It becomes a place where God lives. It's a building where God lives. God lives where these churches are. That's what it basically says. Where there are churches that demonstrate this fundamental aspect of the gospel of Jew and Gentile being reconciled through his body, where that happens, he lives. And I believe it saddens his heart when churches simply set themselves up like the Jew and the Gentiles of old, separated by suspicion and laws, the bottom line is this, Jesus, by shedding his blood, destroyed the barriers and he brought peace. It's the only peace we'll ever see. That's why, if you get this, you need to pursue and you need to find yourself in a church that tries to do this. It doesn't matter where it is, but you need to be in a church that tries to do this. Because if you're not in a church that tries to do this, you simply perpetuate the notion that's already out there that Christianity, that the church, is not about unity. It's not about peace. It's about division. It's about separation. It's the only place that we can justify whole groups of people from one culture meeting together and somebody say, that's not right. It's the only place we can do it is in the church. We do the very opposite of what the gospel achieved. So every time you walk into a church, every time I walk into that Pentecostal church, with everyone, everyone's in there and it's my little Israel, every time I do that, I just perpetuate a notion that's already out there. And it doesn't actually matter then if I do that church thing really well. yeah, If it's like the best one of those types of churches. If we're feeding the poor and we're helping the hungry and we're doing all these sorts of things, I just perpetuate a notion that people already think, Christianity doesn't really matter help us, it's divisive. Look at it. I perpetuate that notion and I I don't let people realise, no, no, actually at the very heart of the gospel there is this unity that he's brought about. Yeah, I accept you don't see it, but it is there. (coughs) So it's important where you go to church. And it's more important in these days because this is one of those, those areas of life that society is trying to work out and it hasn't yet found an answer and we know it never will find an answer because the answer is only found. The true answer is only found at the cross. And we show the world that when we work towards it because do you know what? When we don't work towards it, there's really a little bit of us that ourselves doesn't believe it. So we think, oh... Sure, it's meant to be, but I don't know how to do it. So, I'm just going to go and do this, and I'll just. That's not what we're called to do. Go to a place that at least seeks it. Talking about it all isn't enough. And so, next week, we're going to look at not just why and all that type of stuff, but how and what does Jesus require of us. In this passage, he requires nothing. He simply asks you to remember. But in other passages, there are things that we can do that can help us. But for now, let's just be grateful in our hearts that he did it. He's building the church. He's building the people like this. It's not you, and it's certainly not me. Yeah, He's building it. He started it. He created it in himself. One new humanity, one new man out of the two. Thus, bring in peace. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to thank you for your word. Lord, I want to thank you that, uh, that your word has, um, it answers every question. It really does. Every deep question, every question related to humanity and people, everything that remains the same from all those years ago to today, that's related to us, your word answers. It deals with it. And Father, I pray that you would give us the, uh, the grace um, and the spirit to be able to see what you say and to obey what you tell us to do. Father, I I pray that we would be those who remember. We remember where we came from. We remember that we weren't born into this, that we've been saved by grace, not by works. It's not things that I do that bring me into relationship with you. It's what you have done. And Lord, I pray that you would take the weight off our shoulders of trying to build a church that reflects this, because you're building it, not us.